Hey, it's Sean Fennessy. We've got something special cooking on the Prestige TV podcast. I'll be recapping one of my favorite shows, HBO's Barry, every Sunday night with the writer-director star of the show, the great Bill Hader. We'll talk about the show's wild twists and turns, its special brand of dark comedy, and how it all came together. So on Sunday nights, immediately after a new episode airs, you can hear Bill and I break it all down on the Prestige TV pod. Subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today's episode is an instant reaction episode, and you know what the news is. Elon Musk has bought Twitter. Elon Musk has bought Twitter for $44 billion, and this is one of the weirdest tech acquisitions I can recall. To be honest, I still can't believe that this even happened. For a few days, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. It looked like Twitter was going to successfully fight off the acquisition. But this morning, Monday morning, it seemed relatively inevitable that Elon Musk would acquire the company, thus becoming the chief executive of not only Tesla, the most valuable car company in the world, not only SpaceX, the most advanced space and rocket company in the world, but also now Twitter. Twitter is, you know, I think it's important to say an incredibly important product. It is the straw that stirs the drink of news discourse. It's also not a very good business. This is a company that has lost in the history of its being a publicly traded company, $860 million. It's lost almost a billion dollars in its history of being a publicly traded company. In 33 earnings calls, it has only reported a profit in 14 of them. Again, amazing influential product not a very good business, which raises the question, what is Elon Musk doing? What does he want to do with Twitter and why would he acquire it? 
Wall Street Journal has a wonderful rundown of all the things, the substantial changes he wants to make to Twitter. He wants to soften its stance on content moderation. Musk is a free speech absolutist. That's how he describes himself. He sees Twitter as the de facto town square, and he wants to broaden the, the birth of, of public expression so that more speech, more speech can be had on Twitter that could lead to all sorts of, you know, lovely things. A, a broadening of speech uh, on its own doesn't sound so bad. Could also lead to more abuse and harassment uh, and far-right, far-left extremism. He wants to create an edit feature for tweets. That doesn't sound so bad. He wants to open Twitter's algorithm, which could, I think, lead to some pretty useful innovation. I think Twitter's innovation has probably been a little bit static for power users like me. He wants to give uh, users who pay for Twitter Blue authentication check marks. He wants to rely less on advertising. This is particularly interesting. Twitter is an advertising business. Advertising is more than 90% of its revenue, but Elon doesn't seem to see advertising as the future of Twitter's business. And he also wants to stop spam and scam bots. It's very important to Elon Musk that Twitter be a space for authenticated people to express themselves freely, not a place for spam and scam bots to uh, presume or imitate uh, free speech. So those are the reasons. Now, what happens next? I, I have no idea. I think the only smart way that you can possibly tease out what happens next is to look at multiple timelines. And that's why I was really gratified to see that my colleague, uh, Charlie Warzel, uh, the author of the Galaxy Brain newsletter at The Atlantic, wrote a wonderful article, the worst case scenario for Elon Musk's Twitter that goes through the best, medium, best, and worst case scenario for what happens to the social media company. He is my guest for today's episode, and we talk about why Musk did this, what comes next for Twitter, how this news could change tech and how it could change the news, political, and information landscape of the United States and the world. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Charlie Warzel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So <laughs> my head is like completely spinning right now. I honestly like, I did not think this was going to happen. When he announced the bid, I thought I was in Crazyville when it seemed like he might actually go through with the purchase. I thought things were getting even crazier. And when he actually announced, or when it was actually announced that Twitter accepted the bid, I, I was just... Uh, astonished. What has been your sort of emotional roller coaster ride like for the last few weeks, just sort of watching the Elon Musk news as a as as a user of Twitter and as a commentator on all things tech? Yeah, exhaustion. I guess is one of them. <laughs> just like I feel like the way that things play out with Musk is actually very similar to the way that things will play out with Donald Trump, which is that you're sort of like he's constantly creating these pseudo events where you know it's these sort of mass attentional events like some outlandish claim or you know some kind of like trollish winky type of thing and the the ultimate reaction is like is this real can he do this where what should my level of alarm be versus my level of like i'm getting out over my skis here and what should and, my level of like credulity be? Like right, when most exactly. people say I'm going to buy a company or I'm going to take my company private, they mean it 100% of the time. But with Musk, it's basically like a coin flip probability. Like I'm going to take Tesla private. 
No, he didn't. I'm going to buy Twitter. Yes, he actually did. It's very, very difficult to know when to take him seriously. So one thing I want to do, you wrote a really fantastic uh, newsletter. uh, Your newsletter is Galaxy Brain um, that looks at three potential timelines for a Musk-owned Twitter. And I think one good way to sort of emergency podcast our way through this morass of confusion is to do what you did, break down our possible futures into optimistic, less optimistic, and mildly dystopian. Is, is that a fair representation of the of the the, the 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 valence of your three timelines, optimistic, semi-optimistic, and mildly dystopian? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I would say optimistic is probably like less happens than we think, and then going all the way to, it's basically like how much control he exercises over the platform to some degree, and it goes sort of dystopian the higher the higher you get that. Right. All right. Well, let's start with the most optimistic timeline here. Uh, what does this look like? What does it look like if Elon Musk becomes the leader, the CEO of Twitter, on top of being the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, and things turn out sort of okay? So I, th- I think this one is where essentially he gets very excited at the beginning to make some you know broad changes and sort of enact his his view on it. But what ends up being this sort of new shiny toy ends up being kind of a boring and logistical nightmare for him. And then he ultimately offloads that, you know, onto his underlings and then, you know, diverts his attention to the things that do interest him. And in this version, you know, I think he starts off with some, you know, maybe some, some big splashy things, trying to reinstate some accounts that he thinks, you know, were either unfairly banned or, you know, that, sort of trying to give a free speech maximalist approach. So like, you know, Donald Trump could be one of those, right? But it, it could be any number of of accounts. And maybe it's just a whole bunch of, you know, smaller accounts from people who've been kicked off for what he views as, you know, ticky-tack misinformation, you know, infractions. And so it kind of kicks off this, you know, this media cycle and we all complain about it, but it's not necessarily clear whether the platform is worse off or not. Um, and then after that, all the things he wants to do are going to be a lot harder, right? A lot of these content moderation rules, when it comes down to implementing them are just like, they're exhausting. You know, you have to sort of war game out all these different strategies. Like, does he really want to deal with child exploitation content and, you know, trying to find ways around, um, like hashing to make sure that child porn doesn't circulate on the platform. Like there are these thorny content moderation issues that that people have been debating and arguing about and Twitter and every other social media platform has been, you know, agonizing over since their inception essentially. And no one's found you know, wonderful strategies for these. So, you know, I see I see him kind of getting disinterested there and kind of going by the wayside, but some of the, you know, some of the things he might have implemented, adding, reinstating some accounts and or, you know, maybe rolling back some of the trust and safety requirements, you know, maybe changing the the TOS, the terms of service. So certain things aren't, you know, as big of violations or, you know, adding more strikes for people. What that I think would do, so th- this this scenario I'm describing, I think would sort of take Twitter back to like, let's just say like 2016 Twitter, right? Which is a place where there was more harassment, fewer bans, fewer people being kicked off the platform. It was sort of, you know, easier to, you know, poke the bear uh, and not and not get burned. 
Right. It was more chaos. It was it was a little bit more abuse. It was a little bit more harassment. This is before essentially the Wild West that is Twitter essentially mounted a police force to actually sort of, you know, monitor the city and 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 enforce laws. I think the I think the picture that you're painting is is pretty plausible. You know, one way that I that I thought about it as I was reading your piece is it's like he's going to Elon is going to take over. He's going to fix the easy things quickly, and he might get bored of the hard problems, right? And I do think it's important to say that there are some easy things that a Twitter lover could change if they became in charge of Twitter. Like it's important to say that, like. As an, I, I'm starting at the most optimistic level here, and we're going to get to more pessimistic in a second. But like, there are things about Twitter that are bad and obviously bad. You've written about the trending topics box, which is just like an absolutely embarrassing piece of real estate. Like, it will not stop telling me about Machine Gun Kelly and Zendaya's new red carpet looks. I don't care about Machine Gun Kelly. I don't need to see what Zendaya wore in her last red carpet, and yet I keep seeing them. So, someone who actually uses Twitter, like Elon Musk could actually look at that and say, this is not an, an essential part or a positive part of my experience on the platform, so I'm gonna fix it. He could do that maybe with DM as well. I think there's a lot of ways that DMs could be fixed, that DMs could be more searchable, that Twitter itself could be more searchable, that we could maybe just download everything that we've written on Twitter, take it offline, and then search through it. There might just be ways to make Twitter more useful to a power user like Elon Musk and only a power user like Elon Musk can solve those problems. The board of directors of Twitter don't use Twitter. Like, you you look at them, you go right through them. They do not use the service that they are the, boards, the board of directors of. It's a very bizarre situation. So I'm optimistic that some of these easy problems can be fixed. But eventually, you drill your way down to the hard problems. And Elon Musk, I think, is a technical genius. I think he's an engineering genius. I think PayPal and Tesla and SpaceX are extraordinary achievements. But this isn't money, this isn't cars, and this isn't rockets. This is human nature. And human nature bites back. Human nature is dirty as F. And Twitter is unwranglable. It is, uh, this, this is not something that can be solved by engineering prowess. The, this is dirty, rotten, disgusting human nature. And that, I think, is essentially going to be the hard problem that he's going to bore his way into, realize it's too hard, and say, you know what? Ironically, I'm making more progress going to Mars and refocus his attention there. Um, anything there that you disagree with? No, I, I mean, I think that that's true. And I think, I think a little bit of that, like, Twitter is unwranglable is is what I mean too when I talk about like 2016 Twitter in terms of like the leadership. Like 2016 is a is a period of time where a lot of the people who were promoting like a free speech maximalism, you know, version of this like just kind of like you said, let's there's no cops in this city. We're just going to like let it go. It's the moment where I think a lot of those people finally kind of gave up on that and said, you know, it's true that like if we want communal spaces, if we want conversations that feel healthy, that feel generative, if we want this service to not completely continue to devolve, we are going to need to change some things. And that's okay. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of the founders walking that back is saying that, like, we kind of did get it wrong. We approached this problem in a naive way. We built this service without knowing it was going to scale up to what it is, that it was going to have this kind of prevalence in the cultural conversation. And so, you know, they, they have all, in one way or another, even Jack Dorsey, who seems to be in line with the Musk takeover, have admitted this. And so I think the real rollback is I think Musk is kind of entering this now 
with a very similar ethos to you know what you saw from the founders. This very sort of like these are problems that we can solve. We can get this done. Um, it's actually not as complicated if we just you know put the right sort of engineering mindset to it. And and that is what I think I mean by you know we're kind of Twitter's you know future looks like its recent past essentially. Right. Let's move on to your second timeline, which you call the weird, chaotic timeline. What does this second path forward look like under Musk? I think this is where Elon doesn't get bored, right? This is where he fixes some of those small things, and then he decides that the the easy things, the DMs, the you know, the whatever, the power user stuff, and then he says, "All right, I'm going to try, all, like." anything and everything, right? Twitter is a laboratory and I get to go and experiment with it. And so, you know, I think there's been talk about, I mean, one of one of his main ones that he, he's been touting as recently as you know, this afternoon is authenticating all humans on the platform, which is something like, you know, I guess, blue check verification for the masses. Um, there's a way in which this is like a really, you know, potentially exciting thing to, you know, make it so that, you know, there's this sort of new level of, of understanding of who you're interacting with on a social network, maybe that can push some boundaries. I, you know, it could be some weird, innovative approach. But also we've seen Facebook has tried to do this. They had a, you know, real names policy that ended up being just a massive logistical headache for people who, you know, like uh, people who transitioned, people who, you know, changed their identities in numerous ways, people who wanted to identify in, in certain ways. And it just got super thorny and it became like, you know, trying to extend like, it's almost like you have to create a government-like service, right? Like a DMV for Twitter. And like mm-hmm. right. I was literally wants- thinking about like a DMV for Twitter. Like here's your social security card. And I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea. It's just important to also point out that there's lots of people whose identities are verified who have been kicked off the platform because they were verified, but they were also dicks, right? Like this is what happened to Donald Trump. We know that Donald Trump was kicked off the platform because Donald Trump was verified as Donald Trump and then was kicked off for misinformation. So it's you're not representing, and maybe even Elon Musk wouldn't represent this idea as being some kind of panacea to abuse. Uh, but it would. I mean, just if you're inside the, the mind of Elon Musk, what's the best argument for why this uh, this tweak would be so beneficial to the informational culture of Twitter? So one thing that I think he seems to be really obsessed with is this idea that there's like a lot of fakery on the platform. Like he's really obsessed with the idea of how much spam there is. And there is a lot of spam. There's a lot of spam on every network, also including email. Um, Spam is just a problem of the internet. It's also just a problem of like mail, communication, basically. (laughs) People (laughs) will find a way to spam it. But he's kind of obsessed with this. So one of his, again, part of this sort of secondary scenario is he wants to, you know, think about making all of Twitter's black box algorithms open sourced, right? To make them public, allow people to look into them, allow them to copy them. And again, this is really interesting in theory. Although, you know, when you come down to the main level, there's lots of experts who are saying, like, the reason why a lot of platform algorithms are so, you know, protected is because they're trying to keep them away from people like spammers who want to abuse them. And so it's very, you know, it's one of these ways in which some of his thinking on on this stuff seems to be very sort of shallow, very sort of rudimentary, that it's kind of like he is you know, 
he's he's looking at Twitter through the lens of a very unique power user, someone who has 80 million followers and, you know, is constantly embroiled in culture war controversies all the time and, you know, potential SEC violations. Like, that's the way that Elon Musk's thinking about it and not thinking about it in the sense of, like, you know, what are the unintended consequences of pulling, you know, X lever inside this massive machine that already exists? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I... I, I, I see both sides of this. I understand the Elon Musk sort of right-adjacent, left-adjacent libertarian take that the way that liberalism works, the way that progress works, is that you allow a wide, wide variety of speech that competes in some kind of, I don't want to say marketplace because that's such a hoary cliche, but but that, that, that competes for attention, that competes for, um, for, pe- for, the, for the votes of eyeballs and ears, and that it is healthy for a public discourse to have this really, really wide berth of conversation. That, that ultimately is the best way to lead us toward the truth. I get that. I also think you are really perceptive to see that there is something in Elon's philosophy of free speech that thinks the problem is insincerity. The problem is that we don't know people's identities. The problem is bots. The problem is Russian disinformation. What that overlooks is that sincere people participating in the marketplace of attention can be awful. They can be abusive. They can be harassing. They can say things that are horrifically untrue and that me, and that we might not want to distribute with the same virality that we would something else. And those decisions are just so so difficult. And it goes back to one of the first things I said, which is that I, I think Elon Musk is, is really an engineering genius, but I but when you get into the, the nitty-gritty work of content moderation, you are essentially deciding whether A, you're gonna have no police force at all, like all of the weeds can grow, or if you are going to have a police force, you have to decide what the laws are. You have to decide like what is the truth that will allow, what is the unknowns that will allow, the uncertainties that will allow. That is so hard. Like the guy trying to go to Mars is also going to be spending hours of his day trying to do this sort of like epistemic pruning of like what level of lie is too far to allow in the site. I there, There's a part of me that's just like, I don't want you working on these problems. I think Twitter is like a fundamentally broken thing. I don't want you working on this. I want you building the car of the future and I want you building rockets. I, I, I don't believe that you can fundamentally solve this. It's a terrible job to be the, I don't know if he wants to be the CEO, but like the owner of Twitter, like whatever it is, like I had a hard time. I I said like Twitter's keeper is like what I'm calling him. But like, I I don't, I, it's a bad job. It is a job where a, just like everyone's going to yell at you, which it seems he likes, like he kind of likes to be that guy, which is cool. But, you know, I also think partly, and this is like the, the cynical part of, of me. And I think it's relatively warranted with someone like him is that I think like what he really wants is the title so that the things that he does, the actions he takes, both in his other, like, you know, other parts of his life and career, but also just like his ideological leanings, his musings about speech or whatever, it comes from like Elon Musk, comma, CEO of Twitter or whatever, right? That it sort of gives a level of, it almost gives like a stamp of approval. Like it makes some of his ideologies, Twitter's ideologies. 
to some degree. And I think that there's also like a delightful amount of chaos for him that comes with that, right? Like he, he can say, rattle whatever cages he wants to. And it means it has a different weight to it, right? Because a guy who makes rockets has opinions about politics and whatever. It's like, okay, that's important. He's the wealthiest man in the world. But guy who owns massive platform, you know, where our politics- Arguably the most important, most influential platform for speech in the world. Not to say it's the most well-attended or the most the most subscribed to, but you know Ben Thompson, uh, Shertekery newsletter author, was on a previous podcast, and he basically said this is the Twitter is the straw that stirs the drink of news discourse. That when you look at all sorts of phenomena, whether it's the George Floyd protests or the Trump phenomenon, you can walk, you know, you 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 follow that that river north through all of its tributaries, and you see, oh, th- the source of this of this gusher was Twitter. Like, this happens all the time. It really is an unbelievably significant platform for our understanding of the world. And I understand, to a certain extent, wanting to be like the impresario over it. You're the richest man in the world. You think that free speech is important. Here's the most important organ in the world for for free speech. I want to be the king of that mountain. I just, I, I, I agree with you that it's really important, I think, to juxtapose like that ambition with the fact that it's like the problems of that mountain are like unfixable. Like, like they are just, they are rooted in just dark human nature. And I don't think that any, any amount of, of, of engineering skill is going to fix it. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plane. Just go to indeed.com slash plane right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One more point I wanted to ask you about before I move to your dystopian um, possible narrative is... um, 
how this changes Musk's relationship with Donald Trump. So first order level is that a lot of people assume that Elon Musk will invite Donald Trump back on Twitter. Now that's a really interesting thing because Trump might say yes, and it could work out fantastically for him because he would get back into the public conversation in a way that he's been semi-absent for the last 18 months. Or uh, Trump could come back and people could be reminded how terrible Trump is, how odious he is, how disgusting. And it could remind moderates how much they hate like Trump, and it could maybe nudge them a little bit back toward the Democratic Party. That might be just a little bit too a little bit too much hopium. But here's another alternative uh, in, 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 in the Trump world. What if Trump is invited back to Twitter but refuses? Because Trump has a media spec, Truth Social, that is a competitor of Twitter. And now Elon Musk has made himself Trump's business enemy. He might have created essentially a new rivalry, Trump's media spec versus Elon Musk's Twitter, such that if Elon Musk, you know, does continue to be the CEO of Twitter and Trump does continue to uh, be the head of True Social and even becomes president, that you could have this like showdown between Elon Musk and the White House, which is something that someone who relies on federal subsidies and relationships with NASA does not want. So I laid out a bunch of scenarios, but my fundamental question is this, like, do you wonder if Musk might be soliciting a little bit too much political attention for making himself the head of Twitter, which is an, a company that people across the political spectrum like to pay quite a lot of attention to? I think this is, it's very, like just just the, the question of what Donald Trump would do with a with an offer like that. I think that that is, it's incredibly fascinating because I can see him using that as a way to sort of leverage more power, right? To say, I don't, I don't need this network. I don't need, I don't need any of this. In fact, it doesn't really matter. And it, and it hasn't mattered since I left, you know, et cetera. Um, I think that that is really fascinating. I think there's also like, you're sort of dealing with two people who are incredible, like attention gatherers and, you know, spectacle creators and trolls in their own right, who, who sort of like, I, I think both of them for, for us, I would argue worse for all of us, like are kind of gaming all this stuff out in their heads a little bit. Like, and, and it's really important that, that neither gets played or is seen to be getting played or deferential to the other, you know, want to be the alpha in the situation. I could see a scenario where Elon Musk actually does like a very kind of open-ended thing. That's like, if you've been banned, you can like petition your case to get back on. And we will, you know, open it and hear it. And that way he doesn't have to sort of extend the olive branch, but it's kind of like puts the ball in other people's courts to say, you know, this is this is something you could do if you want to. And then we'll kind of like legislate that. Um, it's a little less of like an attention spectacle, but it makes him a little less of like Trump's lackey, right? He can sort of, you know, leave it up to him. So Trump doesn't have to, you know, sort of reject him, so to speak. So, so th I think that's fascinating. Yeah, there, but there's a, bit, there's a little bit of a Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man situation going on <laughs> yeah. with two people that are just extraordinary masters of gathering attention, uh, essentially potentially squaring off to see who can be the attention master. It sort of reminds me a little bit. I don't know if they if if they overlapped in terms of their their peaks or necessarily had any famous moments of interaction, but like Thomas Edison versus P.T. Barnum, 
like Thomas Edison, the inventor who is also an incredible impresario, versus P.T. Barnum, who is like, I'm all impresario. It's it's all surface level. It's it's all it's all tricks. There's there's no you know <laughs> engineering genius behind the behind the curtain. Um, but that's essentially what what it could what it could represent. Except in this case, P.T. Barnum could is is running for potentially uh, uh, returning to the White House. Returning to speaking of your final timeline, uh, what I call the dystopian uh, timeline, you have a different term for it. Oh no, you just call it the dark timeline. What's the what's what's the darkest timeline here that we're looking at? The the darkest timeline is the one in which Musk like really decides to like use this as the plaything for like a, a particularly vicious you know kind of ideology and. Some of that can be political, right? Some of that can be sort of, you know, I think he's, I think he's described sort of like left leftists as suffering from like a brain disease or something. It's, it's some kind of moniker. It's very clear he has like animus towards the sort of the social justice left. So there is a way in which he could sort of use this power and position to like actively punish that, right? Or to elevate, you know, the most kind of chaotic, you know, parts of the platform, like, you know, inviting Marjorie Taylor Greene to have sort of like an outsized, you know, uh, presence on Twitter, not only inviting these people back, but sort of like, you know, really kind of trying to use those perches to extinguish things. I, I see that as not really like the most plausible thing. Um, I also think he could sort of run this sort of like vengeful, um, you know, quote unquote, vengeful strategy towards with an eye towards like business, right? He could just be using this in ways to manipulate markets, he could, you know, really try to go all in. Um, and kind of, you know, take, take further aim at the SEC. I, I these are sort of like, I consider this to be a scenario that is a, not not incredibly plausible, because I think that like, a, a scenario where he runs this like as a pet project to sort of you know like crush certain democratic tendencies um i think you'd have massive pushback from employees at twitter right and and the and the public at large but i think like one one issue is like inside these large companies the chief executive is obviously the person you know and the owner who has a lot of control but it's also a very large company with a lot of people who build products and who have a say. And at the end of the day, you do need engineering talent. And at the end of the day, there are lots of people who have sort of a kind of, I think, aggressive libertarian sort of anti-social justice mindset, but I'm not sure how many, if there's enough of them to like staff the engineering of a major technology platform, right? Yeah. So, I don't, I, I don't buy the, I don't buy the darkest version of the darkest timeline, which is that, and I'm saying you're, you're putting it out there as just a sort of, you know, it's a l low percentage probability. I don't buy the darkest version of the darkest timeline, which is essentially that uh, Elon Musk reveals himself to be the Joker um, and runs Twitter uh, as if it's uh, Joker CEO. But I do think that there is a dark timeline where a lot of radicals, especially I suppose on the right, who had been kicked off Twitter are welcomed on with a lot of fanfare. So even if he's not putting his thumb on the scale for Marjorie Taylor Greene or putting his thumb on the scale for Donald Trump, their return is celebrated in some way, right? He he welcomes them back with a with a tweet. He he tries to make it a big news story about what how Musk's Twitter is different from pre-Musk Twitter. I, I think that is I think that's conceivable. Like my pessimistic outlook for Twitter 
um, basically comes down to to this. Like, I don't know what his plans for light touch content moderation will look like, but like, he's essentially going to be running a social media site that's like tending to a garden the size of Australia with alien weeds that are growing like one foot per second everywhere you look, and they're wrapping around you as you walk around, like. The site just becomes disastrous. It becomes sort of disastrous to use and mildly abusive. And even if it doesn't become like 2x, 3x more abusive, I think an interesting thing to look out for is the fact that like a lot of people are now very sensitive to the possibility that extremism and abuse will increase in the platform. And as a result, I wonder if even if the level of extremity and abuse doesn't increase, We'll hear more complaints about it because concerns will be made more salient by Musk's taking over the platform. And that too is going to like raise our awareness of the darkest sides of Twitter, the same way that certain scandals about Facebook often like make us focus on the darker sides of Facebook. So I just see like the sort of the darker timeline being that the site becomes more chaotic, more abusive, a little bit more harassy the certain voices that, I don't know, a left moderate like me doesn't want to be surrounded by become unignorable. And voices that I do follow pay such close attention to ongoing abuse and harassment that those phenomena are made a more sort of constant part of my daily life. That's sort of what it looks like. And and I think too, there, there's a way in which like a reversion, right? So like, I think, I think back to, um, they're like around again, like say 2016 and, and the time, like the leading up, like the months right before the 2016 election, when the harassment was kind of like, we think harassment's bad on Twitter now. And it obviously is for certain people at different times. But like, when we look like, I remember some of these like anonymous trolls, like on, on the right, like this guy, Ricky Vaughn, who I think has been outed as someone, but I can't remember who, but like, this guy was like a serial, like on his 200th Twitter account, like high volume harasser, like just like, you know, photoshopping people into gas chambers, you know, like just like horrible, horrible stuff. And, and it kind of just like going unchecked, right? Like they would kick him off and then he'd just start a new one. Like they wouldn't, they, they didn't try any sort of advanced, you know, things about that. When, when Twitter did kind of really make strides to try to get some of these like serial abusers off the platform and in doing so made it a slightly healthier place that that like i know means something to a lot of people and to sort of have that regress i mm-hmm. think there's a way mm-hmm. in which some people like it will feel really bad like if you can if you watch this thing truly degrade in a way that's not just like oh man i'm seeing more opinions i quote unquote don't like i'm talking about seeing like a high presence of Nazis, you know, on the platform, stuff like that. I think that that there's a, it's hard to come back from that. Like that is when people actually start to say, okay, I don't need, like, I don't need to spend my time here. And then it is dominated by the loudest, worst, most obnoxious voices and the people who are trapped like the, and then, as you said, the stuff you start to see, you know, you feel, I think, you just start to see more of, of the worst stuff and less of the, you know, the joyful, the insightful, interesting stuff, even though it'll still be there. And so I, I think that there's a way that that would be incredibly dispiriting to people in ways that they might not even realize now. It will just feel like this full term kind of regression. 
That's really interesting. So it's like, it's a matter of summing up. I'm thinking about what you're saying and I'm thinking about the piece that I just, uh, that I just filed for the Atlantic. Um, I, I'm going to make a prediction and I'm just interested to know what you think about this prediction. I think that if you and I do a podcast exactly one year from now, April, 2023, and we reflect on our evaluation of the first year of Musk's tenure as keeper of Twitter, if that's your, your term, I think the first line summary will be there was more of just about everything. There were more voices. There were more. There was more hate. There was a little bit more abuse and more harassment. There was a little bit more diversity. There was also more features. There were more features that were useful to power users. There was also just more news about Twitter. It was impossible to stop thinking about it because the world's richest man was the keeper of the castle. And that the outcome will be, to some, definitely dystopian, to others, a little bit better as a product, and to many, just like a chaotic clustership. There's just more of everything. How do you vaguely feel about that prediction? I, so what I, I'll tell you what I like about that prediction. What I like about that prediction is that the more is exactly the end goal of what he wants, right? <laughs> the more of all of that. And including him being at the center of it, I and I, I really think that 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 is like there's a good bet on that, right? Because it it means it's playing to his ego. It means he's like active in it. It means he's you know further enmeshing himself in our conversation, everything. So I I think that that part is right. I'm you know I'm hesitant to say that there's going to be lots of changes. Like I think there's going to be way more attention. I just think that all of this stuff, like all this stuff's going to be on a long timeline, right? Like it's going to take time for the deal to, you know, to settle and to get, you know, fully approved and everything. I think I saw somewhere I could be totally wrong on this, that it was like on the order of like six months or something before maybe he even takes hold. It's going to be and several that, months. Yeah. Yeah. And at, and at that point, like he's not probably going to weigh in on what he's going to do for, for that period of time. So it's going to be this long period of being coy. And then I think too, like, I do think aside of, you know, maybe he'll throw out an edit button really quickly, right? Maybe he will do this reinstatement of certain accounts. But I think beyond that, like, if he's actually serious about this stuff, then it's going to, it's going to be a while before we see the changes. So I think like the actual experience of twitter.com, the website is not going to change all that much. I think you're totally right that there's going to be more. The stakes of this entire conversation, the stakes of our sort of, you know, political conversation, our cultural conversation, the whole town square vibe, speech issues as they intersect with all of that, the stakes have been raised by this for sure. And so, and and he has, you know, put himself in the center of that universe. And I think that's, I think the, the more part of that is, is dead on. Charlie Wurzel, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that's all from us for this instant reaction emergency podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with our usual episode. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.